I may have fallen asleep in the middle of this show. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. When you ask who the great leaders of the Texas Revolution were, the names Houston, Austin, Bowie, Crockett, and Travis come to mind right away. But just as important to the birth of Texas are the Tejanos, Texans of Spanish descent who took up arms against the tyranny of Santa Ana. Today we look at Juan Seguin, Jose Navarro, and Lorenzo de Zavala, just a few of the Tejano heroes of the Texas Revolution. But first, what's your favorite Texan fried food? Well, to personally make, I love fried green tomatoes, but to eat, I love Mrs. Barrett's fried coconut pies. Mmm, so good. Mmm, fried pies are delicious. Favorite truck stop thing that will give you a heart attack? <laughs> well, I don't think you can beat uh, authentic, fresh, fried Texas Gulf shrimp. Man, that sounds delicious. But I am going to say the traditional and amazing chicken fried steak. But not just any chicken fried steak. You have to go to the Little Red Barn in San Antonio <laughs> and have a big salad out of a cold salad bowl and get that big-as-yo-face chicken fried steak. Well, I don't know. There's a little restaurant that, uh, I don't know if it's still there, but it used to be there. The uh, I believe it's called the Stagecoach Inn. Mm. And it's down there on uh, 71 south of uh, Austin. It's pretty good. Touche. Touche, my friend. The Texas Revolution is often characterized as an uprising of Anglo immigrants against a Mexican government that they did not understand or desire to be ruled by. The names of the leaders of this revolt would, for the most part, look no different than the names of those East Coast colonists who'd revolted against England 60 years before. But the newcomers to Texans were not the only ones that put their lives and futures on the line to resist the centrist dictatorship of Santa Ana in 1835 and 1836. Texans of Hispanic descent, the Tejanos, played an important part in both the political and military revolution which occurred in Texas. Despite the hardships, before, during, and even more sadly after independence, their leaders deserve a place in the pantheon of Texas legends and heroes. Today we look at a few of those leaders. There were approximately 4,000 Tejanos in the area that would eventually become the Republic of Texas when Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821. At that time, they greatly outnumbered the Anglos since immigration into Spanish Texas from the U.S. was illegal. Those Americans who were in Texas were generally squatters rather than actual colonists. This rapidly changed over the next decade and a half, though. While the Tejano population remained relatively stable, the Anglo population exploded. Anglo colonization was intended to create a buffer to ward off the Comanche. By the time of the Texas Revolution in 1835, approximately 30,000 Anglo settlers in the area outnumbered their Tejano counterparts by about 6 to 1. Despite what many Anglos believed, most Tejanos supported the Texas Revolution. They didn't always share the same motivation, though. Many, but not all, of the Anglo settlers intended from the beginning of the Revolution to have Texas be either an independent nation or to eventually join the United States. Most Tejanos and many Anglos, on the other hand, were only fighting against the centrist regime of Santa Ana and to return Mexico to the liberal constitution of 1824, which Santa Ana had dissolved. Interestingly enough, Stephen F. Austin was one of the Anglos who supported the war for that same reason. One of the major areas of common ground that Austin and his supporters had with most Tejanos 
was that they wanted Texas to be a separate state from Coahuila. It was only very late in the war that Austin changed his views to support an independent nation. Despite these differences in motivation, the Tejanos and Anglos were united in their opposition of Santa Ana and his tyrannical regime. The Seguin family had a century-long history in Texas and played an important role in the state. Their French ancestor, Bartolomea Seguin, immigrated to New Spain and married a Hispanic woman in the early 18th century and then moved to Texas. Don Juan José María Erasmo Seguin was an important politician in the San Antonio area during the early days of Mexican independence. Don Erasmo, as he was known, served as head postmaster for the city, which was a fairly prestigious position for the time. Erasmo Seguin was the only person from Texas appointed as a representative to the Constitutional Congress when Mexico gained its independence from Spain. This meant that Erasmo was one of the framers of the Mexican Constitution that was a cause of the Texas Revolution. He was also instrumental in adding the general colonization provision which allowed Anglos to legally settle in Texas. He helped Stephen F. Austin's father Moses gain his impresario grant, and then after Moses' death, assisted Stephen in finding land for the first colony of 300. He was too old to fight in the Texas Revolution, but he strongly supported it. Don Erasmo's son, Juan Nepomuceno Seguin, would carry on in his family's tradition and follow in his father's footsteps, taking up a political career early in his life. He began as an alderman, but quickly became mayor of San Antonio within five years, in 1833. He was only 27. He was not a purely political leader, though, and led a relief force to Monclova in 1835 to support the Federalist governor there. Revolutionary rumblings were occurring all over Mexico, and Seguin was there from the start. He would play a critical role in the coming months as tensions between Texas and Santa Ana's government reached a breaking point. José Antonio Navarro was another important Tejano in Mexican Texas. Navarro was born in San Antonio in 1795. He was the son of a Corsican sailor named Ángel, who'd come to Texas back in 1769. Ángel worked his way out of indentured servitude to become a merchant in San Antonio, and he married the sister of a local city official, José Ruiz. Ángel even became the town's first elected mayor. José Antonio was the second oldest of six living children. Confusingly, his older brother was José Ángel. His younger sister, Josefa, married the son of another San Antonio merchant, Juan Veramendi. Ángel died in 1808, and when José was 18, all of them were swept up in chaos surrounding the Gutierrez-McGee-slash-Republic-of-the-North events of 1813. They spent nearly a decade in exile in Louisiana before Mexico's independence allowed them to return. The Navarro, Vermendi, and Ruiz families all joined the Seguins as the prominent political families in San Antonio. Vermendi served as revenue collector, two-time mayor, and later as vice governor of Coahuila y Texas. José Antonio had been able to return to Texas by 1816. He was largely self-educated, but he became a licensed attorney and was a land commissioner for Austin and DeWitt's colonies and for the Bejar District. As politics was the family business, he was elected to the Coahuila y Texas legislature and to the Federal Congress in Mexico City before the revolution in 1835. His deep connection with the Tejano families, especially through marriage, gave him a unique unifying position within the community. Marriage also connected him to the Anglos, as several of his nieces were married to Texan colonists, including Jim Bowie, who married Ursula Vermindi. Born in 1788 in Yucatan, Lorenza de Zavala graduated from the seminary in 1807. Rather than join the church, however, he found his calling in journalism and started several newspapers. 
These were always quite liberal publications, so liberal, in fact, that he was imprisoned by the Spanish authorities for his views in 1814. He did not waste those three years in jail, though. Instead, he studied medical texts while in prison and was ready to practice by the time he got out in 1817. His time in prison also did not hurt his political career, and by 1820 he was elected to public office. Only a year later, he was appointed to the Spanish legislature in Madrid. He returned to Mexico after independence in 1821 and served in the Mexican legislature. By 1824, he would be elected president of the Mexican Constitutional Congress, making him instrumental in setting up the Constitution of 1824. At that Congress, he was appointed senator of Yucatan and later became the governor of the state of Mexico, which is where Mexico City is located. In 1828, Zavala was removed from office by then-President Manuel Gomez Pedraza. In the sort of twist that only occurs in history and soap operas, Zavala rallied most of the military in Mexico City in his favor. Instrumental in this was none other than Antonio López de Santa Ana, a man who would later become his bitter enemy. They deposed President Pedraza after four days of fighting, but rather than take power themselves, they installed Vicente Guerrero as president. Zavala was appointed Secretary of the Treasury, but he was forced out when Anastasio Bustamante took over power in 1829. In 1830, Zavala traveled to New York to find settlers for some land grants that he had. He was unsuccessful, though, and transferred these grants to the Galveston Bay and Texas Land Company. He traveled to Europe and the United States, but at the end of 1832, Bustamante was out, and Zavala was elected governor of the state of Mexico once again. He remained in office until October of 1833, when Santa Ana, now president, appointed him ambassador to France. He was there in 1834 when he discovered that Santa Ana had taken dictatorial power. Zavala immediately denounced his former ally and resigned his commission. He had been warned not to return to Mexico City, but that did not stop him from returning to Texas in 1835, where he set himself squarely in opposition to the centrist government of Santa Ana. All three of these Tejano heroes took different roads to the Texas Revolution, and they would serve in the war for Texas independence in different ways. Seguin had the most action-packed role. He was commissioned in the Texan Army by Sam Houston in October 1835, and he had the task of ensuring the fledgling army had provisions and supplies it needed to fight the war. He led a company of men that fought with James Fannin and his close friend Jim Bowie at the Battle of Concepcion. This was a 30-minute firefight at a mission near San Antonio that was considered to be the first real major battle of the Texas Revolution. He and his men fought in the Siege of Bear, which ran Santa Ana's troops out of the city. His men's knowledge of San Antonio's streets and layout was critical to the Texan victory. By January, he was a captain in the army. When Santa Ana entered Texas in February, Seguin entered the Alamo with 15 recruits. He would not be there for the final attack, though. Given his knowledge of Spanish and the local terrain, he was chosen to be the final courier to carry a message from the embattled mission to the Texas forces outside. Seguin rode through the Mexican lines carrying a message pleading for reinforcements, while also declaring that those within the Alamo would never retreat or surrender. Even knowing the dire situation at the beleaguered mission and the likely outcome, Seguin managed to rally a few men and hurried back. By the time he returned, however, it was too late, and the Alamo had fallen. From there, Seguin led his troops to Gonzales, where they joined up with Houston's forces. Seguin took command of the rear guard of the Texas Army during the runaway scrape, serving an invaluable role as scouts to keep the Texans one step ahead of their attackers. 
Seguin's was the only Tejano unit at the Battle of San Jacinto, and he led the pursuit of those Mexican units that escaped the battle. Later, he returned to San Antonio and accepted the surrender of the remaining Mexican forces in June of 1836. Seguin then had the sad task of finding and burying the remains of his Alamo comrades. Navarro's experience during the Revolution was not as violent, but was no doubt as frightening in its own way. He attended the Convention for Texas Independence and was one of the three Tejano signers of the Declaration of Independence, along with his uncle, Jose Ruiz, and Lorenzo Zavala. He was at the convention when news of the Alamo's fall was delivered by Juan Seguin. While every patriot in attendance was saddened by this news, it had personal impact for Jose Navarro. Jim Bowie had been married to his niece before her death from cholera, and he had moved another of Navarro's nieces and her son into the mission to protect them from Santa Ana's forces. They survived the final siege and were taken into custody by the Mexican army as non-combatants. Navarro negotiated their release and arranged for them to stay at a nearby relative's house. Like Navarro, Zavala's experience during the revolution would not be violent like Seguin's. In fact, his political and diplomatic experience made him exceptionally qualified for the task and played a major part in drafting the Constitution of Texas. He was the only person there who drafted a constitution at all. His fellow delegates in the convention's respect for the man and his skills were so great that they named him interim vice president of the fledgling nation. Unfortunately, the battles of the Texas Revolution would not be the last that these three heroes would fight. After the Battle of San Jacinto, and under the rules put in place by the Treaties of Velasco, Zavala was appointed as one of the peace commissioners assigned to escort Santa Ana back to Mexico City, where the prisoner president agreed to try and convince the government to recognize Texas independence. Some of the more aggressive members of the Texas military, especially newcomers from the U.S. who'd missed out on the fight, were less than pleased by this course of action. They managed to put an end to the Peace Commission before it even had a chance to succeed. Zavala returned home in poor health, and he withdrew from political life. He resigned the vice presidency in October 1836. Less than a month later, his rowboat overturned when he was out on the water of Galveston Bay, and Zavala developed pneumonia due to one of the vicious cold snaps that can occur in Texas in November. He never recovered from his illness and died on November 15th. After the revolution, Navarro was elected to the Texas Congress as a representative of Bejar. In that office, he struggled to forward Tejano rights in the face of Anglo bigotry. But in 1841, Mirabeau B. Lamar asked him to join the Santa Fe expedition he had dreamed up, and Navarro reluctantly agreed. Lamar's plan involved sending a delegation to Santa Fe to convince the citizens there to secede from Mexico and join Texas. It was a scheme plagued by poor planning and unrealistic expectations from the start. Now, we talked about this in our collage episode a few months ago, but uh, the net-net is the expedition was a horrible disaster. After being attacked by Indians running out of supplies and getting lost because their guide deserted them and no one else knew exactly how to get to Santa Fe, they finally arrived there in mid-September, three brutal Texas summer months after setting out. They were not met with cheers, though, but with Mexican troops who treated the expedition as an invasion. The Texans were taken prisoner and marched to Mexico City on foot. Navarro spent the next 14 months in prison. Famously, he was given the opportunity to renounce Texas and gain his freedom, but he refused, remaining in prison and even then under the threat of death. He finally managed to escape with the aid of sympathetic Mexican military officials, and he returned to Texas. Despite this poor experience, Navarro returned to public service, holding several offices. 
1845, he was the sole Tejano representative at the convention that approved the annexation of the Republic into the United States. After annexation, he served three terms in the Texas State Senate before retiring in 1849. He was still held with high esteem by the Tejano community. After the Revolution, Seguin remained an important member of the Texas military. He was named head of the San Antonio Military Force and tasked with defending the country's western border. His only notable military engagement during this time, though, was with Henry Carnes and his rangers in his campaign against the Comanche in 1839. Seguin was elected to the Senate in 1837, and he served until 1840, managing to be both a politician and a soldier for several years. Along with Navarro, he worked hard for equality for Tejanos, a steadily losing battle as more and more Americans with little, if any, respect for the Hispanic natives of Texans poured in. He resigned his seat in 1840 under pressure by Mirabeau Lamar and joined an unsuccessful military campaign against the centralist government in Mexico. Later, Seguin was re-elected mayor of San Antonio. In this position, he found himself in some controversy as tensions between Tejanos and Anglos increased. He was accused of speculating in land and of still being loyal to Mexico. I don't know how they'd get that. He clashed with the military when he refused to burn San Antonio to the ground to deny it to the wool invasion in 1842 and of aiding the enemy in the attack. He resigned at the end of 1842 because of threats on his life and fled to Mexico to, quote, seek refuge amongst my enemies. He was captured and eventually coerced into serving in the Mexican army as an officer. In fact, he fought for Mexico in the Mexican-American War from 1846 to 1848. Seguin's reputation in Texas was still good enough that he was given permission to return to the state in 1848. He was even elected as Justice of the Peace in 1852 and 1859, and then as a county judge in 1869. He still had business interests in Mexico, though, and split his time between the two countries. By 1883, he settled permanently in Mexico to be near his son, and he would die there seven years later. The impact that these three Tejano heroes had on Texas history is evident in the way that they are remembered even today, more than 100 years after their deaths. In true Texas fashion, this is largely in the way that things have been named after them, because what higher honor can there be to th than to have a bit of Texas bear your name? But they've had much more influence than just a few names. Zavala County in South Texas was named after Lorenzo de Zavala, and at least 10 primary schools are named after him as well. The Texas State Library and Archives Commission in Austin is housed in a building named after Zavala, as is a road in San Antonio. Perhaps one of Zavala's most overlooked legacies is his book. Journey to the United States of North America was published in France in 1831, but was not translated into English until 1980. It precedes the famous work by French author Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which has terrorized college freshmen for 170 years. Zavala's book voices many of the same observations about Americans that de Tocqueville made. It was written specifically for his fellow Mexicans as a, quote, true description of the people whom their legislators have tried to imitate, a people that is hardworking, active, reflective, circumspect, religious in the midst of a multiplicity of sects, tolerant, thrifty, free, proud, and persevering. Navarro County is south of Dallas, and its county seat, Corsicana, is named in honor of his father's Corsican heritage. The county courthouse has a statue of Jose Antonio on its grounds. There's a historical marker at his Geronimo Creek Ranch near San Antonio, and the nearby schools are named for him. He also has a street in San Antonio named after him. Another impressive monument is the Casa Navarro State Historic Site in the heart of San Antonio. 
Navarro's home was acquired and restored by San Antonio Conservation Society and opened to the public in 1964. His greatest legacy, though, is probably Navarro College, a two-year community college in Corsicana, which largely feeds students into the Texas A&M system. Not bad for a guy who was self-educated. The city that bears Juan Seguin's name was founded by Texas Rangers in 1839, who chose the name as a sign of respect. A sculpture of Seguin was placed in the town square in 2000. As the only one of these three men who actually fought in the Revolution, he was the only one portrayed in movies about the Alamo. There's also a graphic novel that portrays his life. A highway was named in his honor, as was the road that leads to the San Jacinto Monument, and a Liberty ship was named after him during World War II. Did they name the pecan after him? I don't know. They're a little fixated on pecans. Most telling about the respect that Texans have for these often unsung heroes, though, may be the way that their remains have been treated after their deaths. Zavala was buried in his adopted hometown of Channelview near Houston, and the state erected a monument to the man at his gravesite. The respect for Navarro is best summed up by this quote from a local newspaper at the time of his death. To none of her greatest statesmen, nor to her many eminent patriots, is Texas more indebted for her existence than to Jose Antonio Navarro. But perhaps Juan Seguin had the most honor in this regard. At least Texans went to the greatest trouble to give him his honor. Seguin died in Mexico and was buried there in 1890. However, his remains were given to Texas in 1974, and as part of celebrations for the U.S. Bicentennial, they were interred in the city of Seguin in 1976, a fitting show of respect for a true Texas patriot whose loyalty was often judged by his ethnicity rather than his history or actions. It's kind of cool when we started talking about the idea of these three guys is that we went through the laundry list of all the things that are named after them, but there's yeah. all these interesting connections to the to the names and the monuments of places. But man, they were interesting guys who got a lot of work done. I mean, their IMDb page reads about the way that like <laughs> Jim Bowie or Davy Crockett's does. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, their IMDb page does not read that well because in all the movies and the yeah. TV shows, they're hardly even there. Right. They're, I mean. Seguin is just a footnote in the John Wayne's Alamo movie. You talk about Jim Bowie and, and Davy Crockett and them, but Seguin had a hundred year history in the state. His family did. And uh, uh, Navarro had, you know, 50 to 60 years. And they're classy guys. Right. They're very classy guys and they have a great pedigree and experience of politics and the whole Mexican system. Whereas the Texan Anglo heroes we talk about are a lot, you know, they're kind of, they're more Han Solo. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're less Princess Leia, they're more Han Solo. And Zavala was about the equivalent, in Mexico's history, Zavala was about the equivalent of a Thomas Jefferson or or a John Adams. Yeah, he'd already or written John a constitution Adams, yeah. that had been passed and was actually the one that they were originally fighting for to get reinstated. Right, and he was, I mean, he was integral in, in like we talked about, the, the 50 years of Mexican revolution that led up to the Texas Revolution of the 40 years, but he was so critical in that. He's a huge hero in Mexico. He overthrew a dictator and didn't, didn't, didn't take power. He is the rarity. And so then when he came to Texas, he had this magnificent pedigree of, of civic and public service and, and of knowledge and information. And, and the Texans did respond to that. And that's, that's, a, that's a thing to, their, to the credit. They recognize we have a mind and an experience of, you know, this, like you said, this guy is the Thomas Jefferson of the Texas Revolution. And yet, 
because of the nature of how we remember and portray the Texas Revolution, the focus is always on things like the Alamo mm-hmm. and Goliad and the runaway scrape. Right. You know, we talk about the battles of the revolution, but we don't talk about the political machinations that get us to that point. And we don't, he doesn't get the respect for that. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how we would treat Seguin if he had made it back into the Alamo just in time for the attack. Right. To die to, to as be one of the martyrs. Right. Yeah. To be one of the martyrs, how we would have treated him. Um, Seguin for being spending his life in public service because all of these men, that's what's interesting also about them is they were jacks of all trades. They, you know, Zavala was a newspaper man and a doctor and a politician. Navarro was a self-taught lawyer. Seguin was a merchant and a, a you know, a civic leader. He, Seguin didn't necessarily react well to the changes in politics. Navarro was a survivor. He, he adapted, he's all of the writings about him. He adapted with the times and was able to stay a, a, afloat and above the fray of the anti Tejano movement, a shift in attitudes in, in Texas, in the Republic. Seguin did not. And he was a victim of that. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Like, um, I would love, I really now want to find this, the, read this book by Zavala. That, oh, yeah. that mirrors the you know de Tocqueville's <laughs> perspective. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I want to like find the cliff notes and flip. No, I think it, I think it's interesting. These again, these these de Tocquevilles and Jefferson. These are the people that we should be historically putting them on the same pedestal yeah. with. But we also need to understand and own is that they're uniquely Texan, and they mm-hmm. and they are Texan. And in and as you said. They were here for far longer than the Anglo. Yeah, if anything, they're more Texan than Sam Houston or mm-hmm. Stephen F. Austin. Yeah, except for Zavala, who who was only in Texas for two years. He would have been. It would have been perfectly justified for him to have been taken back to Mexico and, and interned in Mexico, because he is one of their great heroes. But he is a Texan hero because of what he did in the Texas Revolution and the impact that he had. Okay, so now. There's lots of things n- named for these guys, oh, and there's there's tons of stuff. There's tons of schools and things, and their stories are well documented historically. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't get the mainstream media treatment in right. in terms of like Alamo movies. Um, well, Seguin's always a character. He he always is in a character. Seguin in all is the, a character and all that the, stuff. Yeah. But he's sort of he passes through as a footnote. But his involvement is so much greater. He's generally it's generally more the the best depiction of him. The 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 two thousand four Alamo movie had a really good depiction of him, and then the the Alec Baldwin did have have a good depiction of him. He's more the observer. He's the one who he's and he he was. He's the one who found out that the Alamo had fallen. He's the one that was he saw the things inside left. Because he was ordered to, and then he j- he arrives just too late. On every movie depiction of him, he arrives just too late to s- he sees the tragedy. So he's kind of he is kind of us. He's the viewer and the observer. Yeah, and it's also interesting that he, uh, I mean, he played a role before and during the revolution, but he also played a role after. You know, he was in charge of the defense of the western border and defense of San Antonio. So uh, most of the stories end with. The Battle of San Jacinto. It's like, yay, we won. And then mm-hmm. they don't really talk about what happened after that. So Seguin would undoubtedly be more prominent if that story was given more yeah, precedence. And he was a tough, brave dude. The The Texas Rangers considered him one of them. And they named ta- a town after him. You know, we talk about our, our, our favorite Texas fighting men. They had such respect for him 
Well, if you get on the new tollway that yeah. goes around Austin, it it the dead it drops you right off in Seguin. In Seguin. But here's the thing that I've I've a detail that I really kind of found telling. These guys fought for Texas and they fought for building Texas and they were these intelligent great guys. But there's a whole other subtext of they were very conscientious of what the Tejano experience mm-hmm. in Texas would be. They fought against not being minimized and being, you know, sort of pushed out of the, you know, they were so highly respected and yet the, they were the very best of what, of the Tejano Texas culture. Mm-hmm. How does then when we look at what we consider the best of the Anglo culture of Texas versus the Creed Taylors and those other kinds of guys, you know, are these, are there, where are, where do they rank in the stories in Texas? I think these three men rank as, as nation builders, as well as, your Sam Houston's and your uh, Edward Burleson's and your David Burnett's, those guys, I think they rank along with them. Um, and it's why we have so many things named after them. We love to name things after people. So, you know, there's a Rusk at Texas and there's Rusk counties and Houston and, you know, uh, uh, Bonham and all these things. Right. So we, we, we have honored them and respected their contribution and their legacy. Navarro has a tremendous reputation in the state still. I definitely thought this was a great look at them just because this is one of those things of stuff you don't learn in history class. You don't really get the full picture. And as we've said, you can't understand the history of Texas without understanding its link to the Mexican struggle in terms of Mm -hmm. the foundation of Mexico and the building of their own constitution and then all of the political upheaval and the and the coups and the and just the, the whole turnover that happened in that country. But there are these amazing and brilliant minds that were just such a root and key part of it. And I think that, you know, the the magic of what made Texas a nation and what it became couldn't happen without these guys. So it's yeah. important to recognize them and it's great to learn something new about these people. They're not just somebody that the school's named after. Right. There's a whole history there. And these people, they are the first Texans because they're the first identified. They identified themselves as Texans. And they were the first to sacrifice for the idea of Texas. The the Vermindi and the Navarro and Vermindi and Ruiz families were, were kicked out of Texas for a while because they fought against Spain to to have a better land for themselves. And so I think Tejanos in the state of Texas should look with these at these people with great pride and great honor. And we, those of us who are of Anglo and of European descent, should look on them with great pride and admiration. Perhaps Seguin's favorite snack was the pecan. Perhaps it was. Perhaps that was. If you've been to Seguin, that's that's all they fixate on now. I will look for that. I will look for Seguin's magic pecan. <laughs> okay. That was how he escaped the Alamo, right? <laughs> magic pecan. I may have fallen asleep in the middle of this show. Yeah. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank our friend James Abendroth for helping us research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press, and you can find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. 
If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.